Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and analytics director at Internews Ukraine. Russia has been increasing its military buildup on the Ukrainian border. Ukrainian and international politicians and experts openly talk about the possibility of a full-scale invasion. Can Russia attack and are Ukraine and its Western partners prepared for it? We will analyze this with James Sher, a well-known expert on Russia, Ukraine and international security. So my guest today is uh, James Sher, who is a famous expert and senior fellow at Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn, and an expert on Russia, Ukraine, and international security. He is also associate fellow at Russia Eurasia Program at Chatham House. Thanks so much for being with me, uh, James. It's a pleasure um, both to talk to you and to be connected to a Ukrainian audience um, during this nerve-wracking time. Indeed, the time is very difficult, so we, we decided with James to talk about the escalation, the, uh, the military build-up of Russia on Ukrainian borders. So my quest, uh, first question to you, James, well, we have seen a similar situation in uh, March and April. We have seen the build-up of, of Russian troops. We have also seen the nervous situation around it. Uh, it has has been repeating now in autumn, in in November, and um, now right now we are indeed in a very nervous geopolitical situation. So, do you think something has changed since spring? I think what has changed is um, simply um, the Kremlin's calculation of how little had changed in. U.S. and Western policy after the uh, last crisis of spring this year. As you will remember, at the climax of that, Biden proposed his summit with Putin and the invitation was uh, greatly welcomed. Um, the Strength and weakness of Biden is uh, President Biden is that words come very naturally to him, and there were things that he said before the summit, and possibly other things he said during the summit, that might have given President Putin and Sergei Lavrov the impression that Russia's message had been understood, and when they think a message has been understood, they then expect everybody to uh, comply. Uh, from our perspective, when, we, uh, when a message is understood, we sometimes think that's a good time to, uh, to, to mobilize our forces and rearm. So there seemed to have been some kind of misunderstanding, I think, of expectations, and this only became clear after a couple months. Add to that that during this time after the June summit, France and Germany have clearly toughened up their position over Minsk. And Zelensky is still there. And although his popularity is falling, um, and it really depends on which opinion polls you read uh, to judge, just how far it is falling and with whom and what it means. 
Um, he's still very much there, and he's being very pugnacious and pushing back. And these things were not supposed to have happened. So go back to the beginning. The beginning really was January 2021, when Lavrov, in a very important interview, said effectively, we have had enough. Um, it's been seven years of the status quo. Um, we, have, we have not invested all this effort for the sake of this miserable status quo. We want concrete changes. We want concrete changes, and that means Ukraine has to implement the Minsk Accords as written, meaning as we read them and not as you read them. And if we don't, if you don't take us seriously, we'll make you take us seriously. We have means. Uh, and we'll use them. So all this was said in January, and that's when the real change in Russia's position occurred. There was a decision to force the issue, uh, uh, to force the issue in Ukraine and in the West, and then we got into this whole dynamic. So in a sense, there is nothing new here. This is just a continuation. Um, the Russians find the status quo intolerable. Um, they think they have um, leverage that the West cannot match. Whatever distinctive leverage the West has, they think when it comes to coercive capability in this particular space, they have leadership that the West cannot match. And they are prepared to show us that they're serious about using it. Do you think that it, in this situation, the threat of a full-scale Russian military intervention is real? We see the publication in, in Ukrainian media. We have seen even publications of these plans in some Western media. So do you think it is indeed real? We can, we can face a real uh, massive military escalation from the east, from the north, uh, from the south? Well, of course, the threat... I'm sorry, the possibility that Russia will use its forces militarily um, in militarily effective ways is very real. Uh, now, there, there are two key points that meet, need to be made alongside this. The first is that, of course, um, the Kremlin, uh, like um, the authorities of any aggressor state, would far rather that the opponent surrender and concede without fighting than having to fight. So their preference, of course, with all this investment, and they make it more and more, and, and maneuvers and, and, and deployments, and they make it more and more convincing each time because they know what indicators we look for. That the purpose of all this, that the preference in all of this is to frighten us to death. And they are experts in doing that. That does not mean, and I do not believe, that this by any means rules out that these forces will be used. One of the best ways of frightening an opponent to death is to actually attack him. Um, and you know, we need to understand something that is missed even on the margins, uh, even uh, uh, amongst people 
who are on the margins of expertise in this area. There is a too easy, too much of a binary contrast made between coercive intimidation, uh, meaning frighten the enemy but no war, and kinetic conflict. Kinetic conflict is simply one element of coercive um, intimidation. So these two are not mutually exclusive. So that's one point that needs to be borne in mind. The second, and this was my view back in the spring, uh, military intervention by Russia, even dramatic devastating military intervention by Russia, does not necessarily mean full-scale invasion. I think that is very unlikely. It doesn't mean that they will act out this um, plainly uh, horrific scenario of attacking uh, Ukraine at operational scales from three different fronts simultaneously. Um, it doesn't mean seizing, holding, and occupying territory. So, again, this is another form of either-or binary thinking that we trap ourselves into. Either things are going to stay as they are, or bombs are going to be falling on Kiev, and amphibious forces will be going ashore, and Odessa and Mariupol and all the rest. No, it, it, it need not be like that. I don't even think a war against NATO is going to begin like that. Um, but what we need to focus on and a couple of Ukrainian experts have done this, is the use of force in more limited ways that would nevertheless have a dramatic impact. And the military objective of such an operation, however it takes place, will not be to occupy territory. It might look as if it is, but its purpose will be to destroy Ukrainian military forces, to shatter them and cause panic and to make it clear that all the investment, all the training, all the American, Canadian, and British support in building up Ukraine's armed forces up to 2014, uh, the seven years of work has just been wiped away uh, in a matter of a few days. That's what they would love to achieve, and that's the message they'd love to send. And uh, so... That is a very real possibility, I'm afraid. By the way, I have to just add, before we move on, a significant factor here, if you, you know, read the so-called tea leaves and, and, and penetrate the chatter, is that European, the intelligence, the military intelligence services of European states, apparently, of uh, NATO, of of NATO European allies uh, have now come on board with the United States and have accepted the American assessment of how real this threat is. Your point that you've made that uh, the goal can be to destroy Ukrainian military capacities, I think it is, it is a very strong point. But judging what you see, for example, the evolution of Ukrainian armies since 2014, at least this is what have what we have been told in Ukraine, Ukrainian citizens, is that Ukrainian army is much stronger in 2014. And if Russia tries to attack, it will certainly 
face uh, se- uh, severe casualties on its side. Of course, it is if it's not choosing artillery war or rocket war or aviation war, for example. So what do you think? Do you think that Ukrainian army has this capacity to really militarily oppose a possible Russian invasion? Well, I'm paid to be skeptical. And I appreciate what has been done. And I um, I take my hat off to those involved in this process, and particularly those in the front line, and those I have met, who are not only among some of the most courageous people I have met, but they are also extremely realistic people. So with, uh, with all respect, the question one has to ask is strong enough for what? What the Russia's armed forces, at least its best ones and its um, battle groups in the front line, are trained for new generation, combined arms, high maneuver, high intensity warfare at operational scales. It is not clear that Ukraine's army has been trained for that kind of war. We all know if the safety catches were removed, uh, Ukraine's deployed forces could destroy the so-called militias in Donbass in 25 minutes. Um, And we know that they've been very effective at the kind of war they have been, uh, low-intensity war they have been fighting. Well, this is different. You can have the best trained and best equipped forces available. And if they're not in the right place, because your enemy is mobile enough to see where your weak points are and is attacking there, and not attacking your strong points, um, or if he's attacking your strong points with means you can't counter, because they're electronically based and they're highly network, um, network-centered uh, form of warfare, then it doesn't matter. Uh, that's, that's the issue. I'm not saying Ukraine has not made progress in these areas, but that is, what is, that is, the, that is the aspect of this that is less clear, and yet it is the most important. And the casualties that Russia can expect in this type of warfare are not going to be on day one, two, three, and four. That's when Ukraine can expect the casualties. It will be afterwards. And the longer the war goes on, the worse it is for Russia. And that's why the Russians will only begin in operation if they are convinced they can achieve their objectives very quickly and will not have to fight that long war. Strike and pull back. But when they can achieve these objectives, as the experience of 2014 has shown us, uh, is when Ukraine is weak. When Ukraine, for example, is internally politically weak, then there is nobody in charge to, uh, to have the real legitimacy to oppose the military invasion. And I remember at one interview, Mr. Putin has said that he will only, it was after the annexation of Crimea, and he was describing the annexation of Crimea, that he would only 
act if he is 100% sure that uh, this will be success. Uh, given this logic, uh, Russia can aspire to undermine Ukraine from within. What do you think about this scenario? Well, first, before we even get there, I mean, there's a transition between the last point and this one. The higher management of defense and military forces is Russia's greatest strength, its greatest area of expertise. Now, let me ask the rhetorical question. Is the higher management of defense in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's uh, strongest card and attribute, does the commander-in-chief, does, sorry, the president, the garant in Ukraine, understand how all these pieces fit together in the way that his opposite number in Russia does? That's a rhetorical question, but the answer is important. Now, yes, um, I think that there's no doubt I'm not the only one who thinks this very unoriginal answer. Of course, the Russia would love, even without using forces, to destabilize the internal situation in Ukraine, to invest in those people and interests who might do this. Here, I'm a bit more optimistic than some others, because every time they've done this in the past, they haven't succeeded. They've caused a lot of anxiety. They have a lot of people they can play around with, but it never somehow works. Go back to all the stuff that Glaziev was doing in 2014, even possibly earlier. Listen to those tapes. Um, has this something fundamentally changed? Is Rinat Akhmetov, whose name was unwisely mentioned by the president in this connection, is he really so stupid to play games with these people? I doubt it very much. Who are these unnamed Russian special service people and these unnamed Ukrainians they've been talking to? Um, if they are real people, we could put names to them, then it's quite clear what you do. You, 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 you broadcast all this nonsense and you arrest the people concerned. And that makes you internally stronger. I hope somebody in Bankova understands this. Cowering and being frightened is the worst thing possible. Um, so, you know, if you want to be strong, be strong, for God's sakes. But, yes, the Russians are trying. Um, I don't wager their prospects very highly, despite any uh, uh, deficiencies they think Zelensky has. And they've always seen him, as a lot of other people have, as nishtoznim, as weak, inconsequential. He's just, a, he's just a, an actor with no experience. Well, he's uh, shown himself to be um, mighty resourceful and... And, and courageous, but they still like to think he's papier mâché. I think you're absolutely right in this, because uh, the mentioning Mr. Akhmetov's name was indeed very strange, and uh, knowing Mr. Akhmetov and his, his basically policies inside Ukraine, he's a very cautious person. He tries to put his eggs into the different baskets, so to say, that was basically his strategy back in 2013-2014. Therefore, he lost 
in Donbass, for example, because he was too, you know, multivectoral, let's say, let's say in this way. But it's really doubtful that he would invest in a kind of a coup d'etat. He would rather invest in, in, in constructing a new political force that would beat, eventually beat Zelensky on the next elections or take significant seats in the, in the parliament. But uh, the Russians, well, they had a big ally in Ukrainian politics, Mr. Inmedvedchuk and his party, and is still uh, present in Ukrainian politics, but it is not that strong than before, given the sanctions of, uh, uh, of Mr. Zelensky against uh, Mr. Medvedchuk. But what they can play upon is precisely the thing that Zelensky can consider to be his strength, because he's trying to maneuver between patriotic uh, patriotic forces and, uh, let's say, pro-Russian forces and say, well, I'm a centrist. So basically, Russians can uh, can strengthen both these extreme flanks, you know, and uh, in this way undermine Zelensky power. And that's probably one of the scenarios. What do you think? Well, far be it for me to give advice to the president of Ukraine. But if you're a patriot, be a patriot. Don't flirt around with uh, don't flirt with people who are following another flag and another cause and of course if the if zelensky is doing that and if there are people in his entourage advising him to do that um they they might be tactically very clever but strategically they are the opposite of clever um it it's essential given ukraine's position generally but particularly at a time like this. A time like this is a defining moment. There can be no ambiguity in the public mind. There can be no ambiguity in the military establishment, in the security establishment. There should be no ambiguity in Moscow or Brussels or Washington about who the president of Ukraine is, what he believes in, and what he will stand for. It's very, you know, this is very important in this sort of crisis situation. Strength, inner strength, will and presence of mind, these things, these things are the vast part of the battles. Indeed, I fully agree with you. Let's, uh, let's turn to the international environment. So when you look at Russian, let's say, media or the, the, the state TV channels, Russian propaganda, Russian propaganda machine. They're basically saying that, you know, foreign uh, Western powers, uh, primarily US, UK, NATO, are militarizing Ukraine, preparing Ukraine for a, a military solution of the Donbass question. Well, that's a, that's a typical strategy of putting the blame on the victim and basically justify your own aggression with the aggressive intentions of the other side. But generally, we see that the reaction of the Western powers is stronger than before. Uh, at least we have we see military ships in the Black Sea. We see uh, the uh, we see the, uh, for example, the very harsh talk about possible sanctions. Do you think that the uh, United States, UK, NATO, other partners' position on this issue is stronger? Is the support of Ukraine is stronger, or as some analysts are saying that? these promises are not worth of the paper on which they have been written. Well, again, there are two aspects to this. First, what is 
what is Moscow's real assessment and what is my assessment and possibly your assessment? These are two, uh, these are two different questions. The, the Moscow state, the Russian state leadership, and not only them, are congenitally un- incapable of viewing Ukraine as the real playwright in its own drama. Um, and we don't have to explain why, because your, your audience understands the point I am making. But the Russians, therefore, believe very seriously, sincerely, were it not for the West and in the last resort, the United States, um, this whole house of cards would quickly collapse, uh, which is a you know it's a it's a dangerous calculation. But it gives it it gives the West a particular responsibility not to waver um, and not to show itself as being hesitant, and it gives Ukraine. And the president's stronger responsibility not to say things and act in a way that suggests that Ukraine will be helpless if 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 um, they don't get the sort of help they want when they help when they when they want it. Now, as far as the actual situation, uh, e- yes, there are certainly there is discussion about measures that are qualitatively different from anything we considered last year. Some qualitatively different measures, I would say overwhelmingly economic and financial, were discussed and might have even been um, articulated in discussions with Putin back in April. Um, there are many in the United States with good reason in the financial world who believe that if necessary um, the United States with or without European support has the means to crush, crash, crash the Russian economy to bring it down or at least seriously damage it I am in no position to assess the validity of this but I know that there are people who believe it and who are thinking about it and in some of Biden's comments recently, you can hear the resonances of this kind of thinking, and hopefully the resonances of a lot of work which has already been done on the sidelines. Then also, for the first time intermittently, we hear some discussion in the administration of military matters. Karen Domfried, one of the deputy um, um, directors in the, one of the uh, directors in the National Security Council, the deputy to uh, Jake Sullivan, was quoted as um, saying, when someone mentioned um, a journalist asked about military measures, she said all all options are on the table. Uh, there have been other comments that Russia could certainly, whatever it thinks of the the current profile, configuration of NATO deployments in um, East Central Europe, that there will, that there will if anything, um, if Russia does undertake aggression in Ukraine, there will be a qualitative change afterwards. Uh, 
And then, interestingly, we have this very interesting military exercise between the United States and Greece using the port of Alexandropolis. Now, the exercise didn't get much attention in the Ukraine context because it was an exercise in the Aegean. And so it got a lot of attention in Istanbul. But if you look at the broader picture of what is taking place, Alexandropoulos and Greece, which has a very good military relationship with the United States, is also very much now part of the whole um, the complex of, of planning with regard to the Black Sea region more generally. So there are some new and encouraging elements here. My answer to you is yes. Um, coming back to the economic sanctions, why are you skeptical about this uh, this scenario? Why do you think that uh, maybe in the current situation, when Russian economy is, is not really strong, when its GDP is equals to a GDP of a you know mid level EU country, why do you think the economy cannot be the major tool to contain Russia's uh, aggression? Well, it can be. Um, I, I mentioned I mentioned new financial measures, which which can be, but of course I'm skeptical, and I'm skeptical because I learn from experience, um, and it's not just in dealing with Russia, but if you go back a long time, you go back into the 1930s when sanctions were being used as a weapon of choice in dealing with the Italians in Abyssinia and all kinds of other problems. They have usually had paradoxical effects. Um, if you are dealing with um, a complex of power and a country that looks at itself in very different terms from um, um, a liberal capitalist democracy, um, the the impact of these things and the political impact of these things is often very different. So uh, a lot of what is being discussed now as new, at least some of what's being discussed as new, has been talked about for a long time. And the, the Russians have been making plans for them. It's not to say they will be, that all these plans will be effective. I really doubt if they have, if they will be able to, um, deal with um, the consequences of being cut off from SWIFT, for example. But the important point about Russia is, yes, the sanctions that, are already, that have already been there, that I fully support, have and continue progressively to hurt the Russian economy and weaken a lot of its capability. But they decide, okay, we will accept that. We put up with it. Yes, they damage certain individuals. Fine, they will have to put up with it. What choice do they have? Uh, do something that's going to make their position even worse by by uh, by by opposing by by doing what? By trying to put pressure on the president? Do you know how Russia works? Uh, you go through a whole series of things. Um, there is a 
there is a pain threshold there that it's understood. Um, it's, it's a strong pain threshold, at least within the elite, with regard to major national interests. And Ukraine for Russia is the most significant national interest. So one has to be skeptical. Um, I think it is important, though, that new economic and financial sanctions being discussed are different. I wish the word sanctions were dropped from the vocabulary because it has all the power, that word has all the power of an anesthetic. I think it is being dropped slowly. I think the, the, the word that needs to be used as economic term is economic and financial measures of a new kind that Russia is not expecting and has not experienced. And there is some sign of that. And that message might be getting across. Uh, there's a second inhibition, which is the Russians understand, we all have to understand, the sanctions that would deeply damage Russia will also be damaging to a great many important interests in the United States and elsewhere. So you're sitting in Moscow, you have to ask, when Biden and Jake Sullivan and others talk about these things, do they mean it or are they just bluffing? Um, are they really going to stand up against the most significant, some of the most significant financial interests in the Western world and the banking system and all the rest of it to do these things? That's why it's all... That's why it's all Samnitilna. I'm not dismissing it, but I'm not confident about it either, which is why I've always said what needs to be done has to have a military component. You know, if, if I'll make a point which I've made before. If a man is advancing on you with a gun, you don't deal with that threat by robbing his bank account. You need an answer to that particular threat. Maybe my last question, James. Uh, we have seen also, we understand that Russia is trying to press the West, as you said, to coerce Ukraine uh, to implement the Minsk agreements, which Ukraine considers to be a coercion to, to peace, the Russian approach, and written uh, really much... Uh, very much to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty, Ukrainian capacity to take independent actions, for example, in the foreign policy, and therefore Russia insists on constitutional changes, which would, uh, which would introduce a kind of a Trojan horse into the body of Ukrainian politics. The Donbas uh, occupied territories, now occupied territories with huge powers, uh, influencing the Ukrainian politics. So do you think that uh, Russians can succeed in convincing the West that, look, we should rather solve the whole issue at the expense of Ukraine? If the question is framed like that, the answer is no. Um, the, the problem we have consists of the influence of those at governmental level in France, in Germany, in many other EU countries, and even in the United States, who believe 
that it's possible to have an agreement or a compromise that will make everybody happy and that we all can live with. That is, that's where the problem lies. Uh, and the, the difficulty here is that as long as people are trying to search for an outcome which is fanciful and completely uninteresting to Russia, the Russians will be able to use that very process to undermine Ukraine's confidence, to confuse the West, and to incrementally and slowly advance some of its aims. Um, the so-called compromise solution over Ukraine would be the most damaging. Because from a Russian perspective, even a year and a half ago, uh, establishment Russian intellectuals like Andrei Kurtumov were saying, I think implausibly, well, to me, implausibly. No, plausibly, but incorrectly. A year and a half ago, two years ago. Our policy in Russia is to preserve the status quo. Well, they're not saying that now. Um, for, for this, for the, the Russian leadership, for Russia today, the status quo is simply a place to stop and rest for a while. It is not, it is never an end state. As soon as you start to address one of Russia's core demands and you make progress, lo and behold, another one appears. Ukrainians should understand this because Yanukovych is the perfect example. He took the issue of NATO off the table, suddenly the issue of association agreement with the EU appears. And it was that issue that became the casus belli for Russia and set in motion the events that led to war, not the NATO issue. Um, and, you know, you hear these different voices in Russia, but you put them all together and they amount to the same thing. What we want in Ukraine will not be enough unless we can have a new European security order. Um, and we have minimal demands here as well. No NATO advanced in no NATO uh, deployed forces and advanced infrastructure near our borders, which means de facto a two-tier NATO automatically. Um, a seat at the uh, table for Russia must Russia must be treated as an equal, um, a, a, a a treaty based uh, a. a a formal treaty, ruling out future NATO enlargement, etc., etc., etc. So there are a package of demands, minimal demands regarding Ukraine and minimal demands regarding the rest of Europe that cannot be separated, compartmented in the way Westerners like to do. Let's say, well, let's see if we can advance here. Um, even though we can't advance there. And if we make progress here, then tomorrow we might be able to make progress there. No, the Russian logic is the, is the opposite of that. 
Indeed, this this is a logic, a holistic logic, uh, all or nothing. And uh, the Western logic is so-called track logic. Let's let's take this one and not that one. Is uh, um, is probably one of the reasons of of uh, of this misunderstanding between uh, the Western powers and Russia. But sorry, I, I interrupt you. The, the, no, the Russian holistic logic is. It does not mean. The Russians expect to achieve what they want to achieve all at once. But it's holistic in the sense that it is interconnected. Um, the Russia is an aggrieved and discontented power that will not feel contented until there is a new security order in Europe based on what the which incorporates Russian equality as they understand it. The problem in the West is not even what you call um, a, a track approach. It's the belief that even Biden has publicly articulated that Putin, just like the rest of us, wants peace in the world. That was the term Biden used. And um, that everybody wants a solution. And we'd like to solve the problems between us. The Russians, first of all, don't care if three quarters of the world, Putin doesn't care if three quarters of the world is in flames as long as Russia's national interests are being respected. He doesn't mind being an adversary of the United States as long as Russia's national interests are being respected. They were very flattered when Biden said, oh, we consider Russia a worthy adversary. They're not trying to improve relations. They are interested in achieving specific changes in the way the world is run. There's nothing new here. And they've been very honest about this and in making these points. And we always assume, well, they can't mean that, really. Uh, they want us all to live together and, and, and be happy. <laughs> <They don't. laughs> Indeed, and I think this is a very good point. This is something that we, uh, we try always to repeat, that Ukraine is not a... Uh, Donbass is not a target, but even Ukraine is not a target. And uh, what is the target is the new security order, new conception of the world, and therefore... If Russia succeeds in Ukraine, there is no guarantee that it will not attempt to go farther to the east, farther to the west, to to Central Europe and to other regions. Unfortunately, we have to finish at this point. Uh, thanks so much, James, for your very sober thoughts, uh, as usual, very sober ideas and uh, something that really gives us a real picture of what's happening on the ground and what can happen. Uh, we had James share. Uh, an expert on Russia, Ukraine and international security, senior fellow at Estonian Foreign Policy Institute at the International Center for Defense and Security in Tallinn and associated fellow and uh, at Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Thanks so much, James. Thank you a lot, Mia. 
This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, follow ukraineworld.org on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our website at ukraineworld.org and stay with us.